0: Hi, folks. This week, we have a special rebroadcast of a show I co-hosted with Jeff Kaplan on KSL News Radio, focusing on race relations in Utah. In the wake of ongoing demonstrations for social change following the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis recently, this was an effort to discuss topics crucial to affecting that change by finding practical solutions to issues such as criminal justice and policing, as well as equality and diversity in the workplace. Please enjoy the show.
1: Jeff Kaplan and Jason Lee of the Deseret News on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160
2: AM. Welcome to this special hour on KSL News Radio. I'm Jeff Kaplan as our radio station continues a day long focus on race relations and diversity in Utah. Our goal is to gain understanding by exploring some of the issues that have exploded in the weeks gone by, and I'm honored to be joined by a wonderful and insightful Deseret News journalist, Jason Lee, who also hosts the podcast Voices of Reason, which is heard every Sunday, 3 p.m. here on KSL News Radio. Jason, thank you for being here.
0: Jeff, thanks for having me. It's going to be great to join you today.
2: It's not a comfortable discussion, though. Today is I think a month since George Floyd was killed, and a lot of people are confused from the streets they 're hearing things they've they 've never heard before white privilege defund the police and the shouting has gone in both directions. Jason, it almost feels like battle lines are being drawn
0: well i I think those battle lines have, battle lines have been drawn for years now, and this is the time when there's been this tipping point, and maybe this is a time in history when change actually can be uh, manifest to happen. And whereas before, people thought it it, it, it didn't involve me, it, it doesn't really affect me. When you see someone's life taken away from them in such a harsh and inhumane way, and you could see yourself being that person, maybe that's uh, what, is, what was needed to then have people say, you know, I want something to be done that we can make things better for us in the future.
2: Jason, we just agreed before the show we would discuss where we're coming from and a little of our own histories Regarding race you first
0: sure. Uh, I grew up uh, in Chicago on the south side of Chicago um, I I didn't have any white friends until I went to college at the University of Illinois and so my life was pretty sheltered in that way and Going to college meeting new people having to learn a lot about others different from myself it uh, it was challenging certainly and uh, but it it helped me for the rest of my life because today in uh, professional environments that I'm in uh, in around this country, uh, it, it, I'm able to be able to have conversations with people different from me and still be appreciative of the people they are. I can uh, give them a sense of security when they talk to me that I am much like them and that they, they don't have to worry about just because we look a little different and we may have come from different places that we don't have many of the same things that we uh, try to do in our lives and, and we want uh, success for everybody that, that we come in contact with
2: i appreciate your story Uh, mine is pretty simple suburban new jersey my seminal moment was 1967 i'm eight years old my parents told me there are riots 30 miles up the road in newark new jersey in 1967 dad said they're burning the town down and i was scared that they were going to come for me in my suburban home 30 miles away which was ridiculous i didn't have my first black friend till 10th grade and in, in in realistically realistic terms i'm still catching up at this point that's the honest
0: assessment do you feel like you have a this may be your opportunity to you know catch up some more
2: a little bit during this hour and our goal is a simple one to listen and to understand Now we don't have to agree jason and i Absolutely. or you and anyone else but let's get to the part where we understand the argument and the first argument is whether Black Lives Matter, whether Blue Lives Matter, or All Lives Matter, criminal justice and policing. And our guests in this portion of this hour Monica Williams from Weber State University. She's an associate professor of criminal justice. Welcome to KSL News Radio.
3: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
2: Sure. And also joining us, former Salt Lake City Police Chief Chris Burbank. Thanks for being here.
0: I've had the opportunity to uh, talk to Chris before, and he's very insightful. I'm really uh, looking forward to this. But, Professor Williams, i got to be honest with you, this is my first chance uh, other than yesterday to talk with you at at length. And I was hoping you could kind of give us some understanding, uh, historically speaking, of criminal justice and policing and how it began and how it's evolved to where we are today.
3: Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that uh, people should know about the history of policing in the United States is that it really began as a way to control the underclasses. So um, when Jeff was speaking about the riots um, in the 60s, um, way before that, um, there had been various riots, working class, especially in the North. Um, And in major cities like Boston and Chicago, Um, these riots by working class people actually led the elite groups to create police forces. Um, So that was in the North. In the South, the uh, policing began as slave patrols. So the first, um, not formal police departments, but uh, groups that were seen as kind of like law enforcement in the South were slave patrols. So they were looking for slaves who were um, out when they weren't supposed to be um, the landowners were really, and slave owners were really concerned about um, losing, at that time, their property. Um, so they had these slave patrols. And the main concern for these landowners was that the slaves were going to band together and um, overthrow the system, and additionally, that they were going to band together with working-class whites, um, who were also, you know, in a pretty poor situation, but not not in the same level, obviously, as slaves. Um, So what they did is they made those working class whites become the slave patrols. So it was kind of like, well, we're poor too, but at least now we're a little bit above the slaves because we get to kind of police the slaves. Um, So that's really important to remember that the history of policing in the U.S. started Um, with slave patrols and as a way to kind of control people who were um, rioting and uh, protesting and trying to um, make things right.
0: So in this way, it it looks a lot like uh, controlling, controlling is the word that that we would use, police were used to control, uh, generally speaking, people of color and people of the Mm -hmm. underclass and and protect those who had uh, money, land, and things like that.
3: Correct. So it was all about um, policing anything that might threaten the people who owned property or land or, you know, had money and resources. Um, and a lot of times, or at least in some t- instances in the, in the larger cities, those were the people with the power to create the police forces. So it, it in some cities led directly to the creation of the police forces.
0: Can you talk a little bit about uh as more off of policing, a little bit uh, to criminal uh, justice, where we talk about um, how did we come with prosecutors, defense, court systems, and 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 as it turns out, uh, uh, prison systems. Which, by the way, uh, after slavery was abolished, the only way people could become indentured servants is if they were arrested and, and imprisoned. So, can you uh, kind of expound on that a little bit, uh, professor?
3: So a lot of our um, criminal justice system, e- even policing as well, is kind of adapted, I guess, from uh, the English model of policing in courts. Obviously, we took it in our own direction. Um, so our court system developed as a more adversarial system where it's kind of, you know, prosecutor versus defense and whoever has the best argument wins, essentially. Whereas in other countries, um, especially the European model and the, the English model, is more that it's about finding finding out the truth. So the, the what would be similar to prosecutors and judges really work a little bit more collaboratively to figure out what actually happened. So that's one difference between our system and other systems is that ours uh, evolved as a more kind of compete for, makes the best case, and that's the, the side that wins.
0: But it still is a system that isn't necessarily fair though, right?
3: I I would say not. And the research shows not. Um, Defendants who are um, people of color um, are generally at a disadvantage in the court system. Um, Multiple, multiple studies have shown that uh, people of color get harsher sentences for the same types of crimes uh, compared to white people. Um, And when we talk about incarceration, um, the U.S. has by far the highest incarceration rate in the world uh, or one of the highest in the world. And um, it's very disproportionately uh, African-American and particularly African-American men.
2: Given those statistics, I would like to ask both of our guests. Uh, First, Monica Williams, do you believe there is systemic racism in policing in Utah in 2020?
3: Absolutely. I think there's systemic racism in policing across the country. Um, And part of that just stems from where policing came from. I don't because it started for racist reasons. um, There's not really ever been a push to change the structure of policing to make it less systemically racist. Um, And I, I think this is a really important point because you know, there's discussions out there about, you know, the, the videos that we see, and these are just bad Apple police officers. Um, I don't think we can just say that, the, that there's individual officers and there's such a pattern across the country of similar kinds of um, violence against particularly Black men and particularly young Black men, um, that it's We can't say that it's just one bad police officer here and there. It's a systemic problem for sure. Um, That's just embedded in, I think, from the very beginning of policing. It's been there, um, and we haven't really done much to try to change that.
2: And let's ask uh, the former Salt Lake City Police Chief, Chris Burbank. Do you believe there's systemic racism in Utah police departments, not just Salt Lake City, but Utah departments?
4: Yes, I think Monica addressed it adequately. Uh, Absolutely, there is. If you look at the outcome of the criminal justice system, we have disparity. But one of the things that I think is important, because what we like to do is we like to put labels on. So when you say systemic racism, what you have is you have disparity in the outcome. What we want to determine scientifically is what is directly attributed to the racism that exists within police officers and what is within the system. What we see across the country, 250 agencies that we've worked with across the country, and you take a baseline of the bias of the individual officers, the outcome is always much more disparate than what you would anticipate looking at the individual racism found in human beings. And so it's the system, it's the policy, the procedure and the practice that has more influence on the outcome than the individual racism of police officers.
2: When we come back, we're going to go a little bit deeper than whether Black Lives Matter or Blue Lives or All Lives Matter. That just really scratches the surface. We're going to continue the conversation. Jason Lee from the Deseret News is with me. Chris Burbank and Monica Williams stay with us on KSL News Radio.
0: You're listening to a special rebroadcast of Utah's noon news from KSL News Radio, focusing on race relations in Utah.
1: Race relations in Utah, in depth coverage on KSL
2: News Radio. This is Jeff Kaplan, along with Jason Lee from the Deseret News, our guests Monica Williams from Weber State, an associate prof of criminal justice, and former Salt Lake City Police Chief Chris Burbank. Thank you both for being here. I hope you'll indulge me because we're going to begin this next segment with a Facebook meme. Will you all forgive me? (laughs) Sure, go ahead. Okay, this is about Rayshard Brooks, and it happened to to just catch me. Rayshard Brooks, if you don't know, fell asleep in his car while in line at a Wendy's drive-thru in Atlanta a few weeks ago. Police were in the process of arresting him when he attempted to run away, and Officer Garrett Rolfe shot him twice in the back. Mr. Brooks died. And, and here's where the meme goes. What could have happened in this instance? Well, Officer Rolfe could have said, hey, in light of what's happening in the country now, I'm going to move your car. Mr. Brooks, I'm going to put it over in that parking space. I'm calling you an Uber. You're going home. Come back tomorrow. Get your keys in your car. Then report to the police station. The other cop could have said, I'll tell the manager at the Wendy's that your car's in the parking lot overnight so you don't have any problems. Mr. Brooks says, thank you. And the result is that Tamika Miller still has her husband. Mr. Brooks' children still have their father. So I want to ask you both, Monica Williams and Chris Burbank, is this a fairy tale or is this the way policing
0: actually should work? Can we start with uh, uh, Chief Burbank?
4: Oh, absolutely. So, yes, there are alternatives to policing and we get stuck in a rut in which we respond. But the thing that I think is important here, right, we want to point the finger at policing, right? Policing is a system that meets the expectation of the public. And now it's no longer meeting that expectation. We're saying, hey, wait a minute, we need to change that explanation. Is it all right to allow that individual? We have walk away in that particular circumstance. We have for years and years correlated reduction in crime to the number of arrests that we've made historically. And there is absolutely no scientific correlation between those two things. And so it is now time to start evaluating everything that the police do and saying, is this the right thing to do? And in fact, if we're ever going to change the outcome of use of force, we need to start evaluating those instances on why are we there in the first place? As opposed to that moment in time that you say, oh, yeah, boy, that got bad. Well, we would never have that bad moment if we weren't involved in the first place or if we changed the dynamic from the beginning
0: professor williams how how could we change that dynamic what what could we do to help maybe mitigate circumstances so that police officers with the kind of training that those officers might have had might not have necessarily had to uh, resort to uh that outcome
3: well, that's a great question and i agree with everything that chris just said um one of the things that we need to think about in these cases is not was the shooting justified, but could it have been avoided? And what were the things, as Chris said, leading up to it? Um, one of the things that happens, thinking about the entire situation in that case, was um, there's somebody asleep in their car in the drive through and the first thing, maybe not the first thing, but the thing that happens is that people call the police. So we've become so separated from each other, I think, and, and so worried about safety individually, like in our communities that that maybe nobody thought to go up and, and find out if the guy was okay um, before they called the police. But also we as the public just generally don't have that many other options. So we call the police for everything. And the vast majority of calls to police are service calls, you know, general service kinds of things. It's not it's not very common that police are called to, for example, crimes in progress or someone's breaking into my house right now. Of course it happens, but it's very rare. Um, so one of the things that you hear a lot is officers have to make split second decisions. So we could start thinking about how do we make it so the officers responding to these calls aren't, don't put themselves in, the, in situations where they only have a split second to respond. So it's the dynamics going into the call is exactly exactly right, that we really have to look at what's getting them there in the first place. And then once they're there, um, what are they doing um, to keep themselves safe and keep the people around them safe.
2: Well, perhaps this is a problem because we have to think about, we have to consider that perhaps we should do something else and we're first starting to investigate this and it brings up the what about argument. What about if there's a robber inside your garage? What about if somebody robs your house, you get home everything's missing? Who are you going to call when there's a riot on your street? Do you want a police officer or do you want a social worker on your doorstep? These are some of the arguments against. And how do you counter beyond saying we have to look at?
4: Oh, Jeff, let me jump in on that if you're (laughs) OK. Sure, sure. Because absolutely. So we are not talking about those serious crimes, right? Those the police are very well equipped to deal with those circumstances. You look across the country throughout the last 10 years, the individuals that are being shot and killed by the police are not murderers, are not serial killers. They fell asleep. They have a tail light out. They're selling CDs. They're selling cigarettes. This is a nonsensical argument. Let's start evaluating this notion that anything that makes us feel uncomfortable, we call the police because the police have really just two options right? Because that's all we've given them in their tool bag. They can arrest the person and remove them from the situation, or they can allow them to stay there. Now, if you are the business owner, or you're the person next in line in the Wendy's who called and said, hey, there's a guy sleeping here, you're not going to be very happy if you have to drive around, which again, says something about society. But there are alternatives to this. And so the police are set up to fail in those circumstances because they have no other options. Let's start providing avenues that are not driven by arrests. This notion that if we arrest every small minor detail in society, we won't have significant problems does not bear out. Scientifically, it is not factual.
0: Chris Burbank is currently the vice president uh, for policing, uh, for the National Center for Policing Equity uh, in New York. And uh, this is the kind of thing he's talked about uh, for some time. I'm wondering, you know, as we look forward to kinds of solutions, uh, what kinds of uh, policies can we begin to implement that will I mean, is is it? I mean, defunding the police is a, is a terrible term. They need to, uh, what they mean to Bad do is... Branding. Bad it's branding. It's a terrible branding, right? They What they mean to say is they want to use some of the money that otherwise goes to policing to other kinds of things involved in uh, community safety. But in that way, I would like to ask uh, Professor Williams and then uh, Chris, what kinds of solutions could we implement that could make a difference in and hopefully improve outcomes when there are interactions with police? Or should there or maybe not have as many interactions with police?
3: I I think this actually goes back to the question about whether this is a systemic problem. One of the most fascinating research findings to me is that when police departments have a clear and specific use of force policy, just having the policy actually decreases instances of use of force. So having the policy, making sure your officers know about it, um, that to me indicates that we need those kind of bigger changes within police departments. Um, Training is great, but actually doesn't always fix the problem. And and research shows that things like having policies are actually a a good start. Um, But definitely shifting money from um, some of the more militaristic aspects of policing toward um, social work agencies, toward um, family, uh, child and family services, toward domestic violence agencies, um, towards agencies that work with the homeless to try to fix the problems um, that people are seeing that are they're calling police on. And it, it really does go back to what Chris said about people call the police on every little thing of disorder. And it, it's really important to remember that that's basically why policing started in the very first place, is that the elites, white elites, were really uncomfortable with these um, these people who were different in their midst. And so they were calling police because they weren't doing things the way that everyone, you know, the white elite were doing things. And we're still seeing that today. So I think shifting the the resources around to these other agencies is a really good start.
4: Chris. Okay. So I'll try and be brief, but this is a big question and it's important. So if we're talking specifically about use of force, it's time to change the statute to read necessary and to evaluate the entire circumstance, not just that moment in time. You will never change the outcome or the use of force if we don't address why is the officer in the situation in the first place that they then feel the fear necessary to use deadly force. Let's change the beginning of this. What are we going on? The criteria for what we're going on. And then as you change that statute, as you change the expectation, that's exactly the level that you're training police officers for. This is not a surprise. Aha, we got you now. We're going to tell you about it. And then we're going to train you to that standard. But for your other question, I point to Colorado, right? When they moved down the road to legalize marijuana, the discussion, and especially from law enforcement, was crime will go through the roof. Everybody will be using marijuana. What will we do? Well, what have we seen years later? Crimes declined. Use of forces declined. The number of arrests have gone down. The number of arrests for possessions have disappeared completely. And the force traditionally associated with those, which has been significant in the past, is no longer there. And now the question is, and the most interesting sample is, dispensaries are going down. Use is not on the increase. In fact, public demand has decreased and we've got less crime. So why do we not evaluate all that the police department does? You go through the line item budget, right? And the line item that says armored vehicle to drive into the middle of a crowd. (laughs) Well, that doesn't happen if you cross that off the list. And that's just the beginning. Evaluate policing on an efficacy What is the purpose of what you're doing, and does it have the desired outcome? In most circumstances, when we look at a lot of efforts by police, it is 1% effective in getting to violent criminals. But it impacts millions and millions of people across this country inequitably every single day
2: points to ponder insightful analysis in fact from former salt lake city police chief chris burbank and monica williams from weber state university thank you both so much for coming on the air this half hour jason lee and jeff kaplan our special hour on race relations and diversity will continue
0: You're listening to a special rebroadcast of Utah's noon new news from KSL News Radio, focusing on race relations in Utah. Race relations in Utah,
1: a one hour special with Jeff Kaplan and Jason Lee of the Deseret News on KSL News Radio 102.7 FM and 1160
2: AM. KSL News Radio and on Facebook Live. There I am, look. I'm Jeff Kaplan. As our radio station continues a day-long focus on race relations and diversity in Utah, our goal is to gain understanding by exploring some of the issues that have exploded in the weeks gone by. I'm joined by Deseret News journalist Jason Lee. Who also hosts the podcast Voices of Reason, heard every Sunday, 3 p.m., here on KSL News Radio. Jason, as I mentioned, this conversation nationally erupted with the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, but the discussion quickly spread to white privilege and the unseen hardships faced by African Americans all over the country. And now let's talk about that. So,
0: what we have to be able to do is have. Well, I guess it is kind of uncomfortable, but it doesn't have to be. Because as a black person, you have to know that there're always going to be challenges. I, I wake up every day knowing that and it sometimes is a pain in the butt, but you know, you, you you learn to live with it and you learn to adapt and overcome it.
2: Jason, what kind of challenges have you faced in everyday life in Utah?
0: Oh, man. Well, I frequently people don't know what to make of me. If, if when they I get looked at uh, a lot of times uh, if I I used to ride the train to work when when we actually came into work. And oftentimes people would not know if they could say hello to me because they don't know many people of color. So they thought of me as other. And I I get that quite frequently, to be honest with you. And um, it's but again, it's something I got used to growing up, uh, even in the Midwest, when people don't have a lot of exposure. When you're of the majority culture and you don't have a lot of exposure to people outside of that, then it it makes trying to reach out and, 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 you know, be around other people seem a little, you know, Uncomfortable for you, and so in that way, I try to put people at ease as much as I can. Though they have to recognize they have the problem, not me. Well, our
2: guests, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Let me change. Well, no.
0: The idea is that everybody has to recognize other everybody's humanity and think of them just as another person, not as other. That's well, that's let, what I would say.
2: Let's take other and make it more familiar with our two guests this segment.
0: We, on this segment, we have James Jackson III. He's the uh, founder of the Utah Black Chamber of Commerce. And Sarah Jones, she is a founder and CEO of Inclusion Pro. It's a company that helps businesses and organizations promote diversity and be more inclusive in the workplace. And we hope to have a discussion where James and Sarah can uh, talk to us about workplace dynamics and some of the uh, challenges the minorities face in those uh, environments. So first, I want to start with uh, Sarah. You know, you literally work with diversity and trying to help workplaces be more inclusive. what What is that challenge and what, what does that look like? And, and how can those kinds of things be achieved?
5: Well, right now, as you can imagine, there are a lot of leaders that run companies that are bewildered right now. They have been caught very unprepared um, and wondering how to proceed. Um, I, I get a lot of inquiries from executives that, um, they're very challenged because they, they know that they need to do something, but because it hasn't been a high priority within their organizations, um, they're they're struggling somewhat. And so um, I'm having a lot of conversations with leaders to help reframe what what the conversations around, around racism can look like within their organization. To be honest, most of the time in corporations, we try to avoid race as much as possible, and that actually has not served us well because people... Quite frankly, don't have the communication skills to really be able to talk about the challenges. And I mean, this has been one of the most challenging times. Um, and so the the corporate leaders and and leaders in workplaces are quite unprepared to know exactly what to do. They have employees that are you know asking for calls to action that are asking for statements around Black Lives Matter. And um, so you can imagine for these leaders, um, they're they're struggling. And what it what the opportunity has been really at, for me um not that any of us is is pleased with any of the racial strife and the injustice that is going on but it there has been a massive wake up call in a way that really has never happened for leaders to actually do something and while i think there's there's a, a you know a group that are being reactive there's also another group that in the conversations it's sort of like um, they've they finally woken up to this understanding that diversity inclusion within the workplace, it's not just you do an initiative or a training. There's the sustainability component that has to happen that that are starting to be a part of a lot of my conversations. Um, I think some of the relief that goes along with that, though, Jason, where I think before they've been, oh, no, what do we do is it gives them some relief that this this takes time. It takes time to change a culture. It takes time to build those communication skills and the right policies and training so that people can feel more comfortable around conversations like this. So I think in some sense, there's some relief there, but it it really has caused them to think about what is the action that's required me of a leader. And for me, that has opened up a lot of opportunities to finally go in and build the right strategies within organizations so that they can build these sustainable Um, a a sustainable strategy for long-term.
2: Sarah, this is Jeff Kaplan. Um, A a lot of times uh, the exposure to diversity training comes when an NFL player gets in trouble for saying something stupid or an owner does the same thing and they're sent to diversity training. That's what many people know about diversity training. Is it a way for businesses to simply show, hey, we're trying to do something or does something happen in this training that truly changes the dynamic in companies, businesses, and on football teams?
5: Great question, Jeff. So so quickly, it, the, the answer is not going to be in just training, right? So, so, so there needs to be an overall strategy that starts from the leadership team and creates alignment around the leadership team. And then the, the training is going to support the strategy, right, in many different ways with many different aspects. I I think maybe one of the questions that you're hitting on is I think a lot of leaders are sitting there thinking, well, so, for example, if you're leading a company in Utah, the black population is less than it's about 2%. And then within the workplace, it may even be lower than that. So they're sitting there thinking, okay, I know I need to care about race and black lives matter. I know we need to care. But the numbers of of employees within my organization that are impacted are so small. Right. Just as a as a practical matter, if they just look around and understand who is really, you know, the most strongly impacted. Um, And it's been actually a really great opportunity to help reframe a really important conversation, Jeff. And that is that when you do this work, it is not for just a small part of your employee base. When you do diversity and inclusion the right way, it actually benefits everyone. Inclusion is for everyone, and we've often thought of it as this thing that only, you know, supports just a few people within the organization, and that's where we've actually gotten it wrong. So the way to rephrase that or reframe it for leaders is you're building a strategy so that everyone, even the, the groups that have historically struggled the most or not been given as much equity, can thrive within your organization. And we know from research that when you actually build products, processes, anything with the marginalized populations in mind, it actually creates a better product or solution for everyone. And so somehow we've missed that part of the conversation. I'll give you just a quick example. When you build technology, we realized that when people with disabilities were using technology, It actually didn't work uh, the way that people with abilities were building it. So there was a lot of lessons learned. And the, the way that we actually use technology now with better user interfaces and things like that have been because we built the technology so that anyone can be able to use it. So that's an example where it actually serves the larger population, but we've never really understood diversity and inclusion to provide those kind of benefits.
2: Thank you for introducing the concept. Sarah is a diversity expert, and James Jackson III is the president of the Utah Black Chamber of Commerce. He'll join us in just a moment, a quick break, and back as we continue with this special hour about race relations and diversity. Jason Lee is with me, Jeff Kaplan, on KSL News Radio.
0: You're listening to a special rebroadcast of Utah's new news from KSL News Radio, focusing on race relations in Utah.
1: Race relations in Utah, in depth coverage on KSL News
2: Radio. Jeff Kaplan here with Jason Lee from the Deseret News. You don't have to agree with what you hear. It's important, though, that you understand our guests. Sarah Jones is the founder and CEO of Inclusion Pro, a company that helps other businesses and organizations promote uh, promote diversity and make themselves more inclusive. We're also joined by James Jackson III, the founder of the Utah Black Chamber of Commerce, and we thank you for joining us on KSL
0: Radio.
6: Thank you for having me, Jeff.
0: So, James, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of the challenges – that uh, particularly African-American business people face here in Utah and trying to grow their businesses and, and hopefully become part of the, the, the mainstream uh, business community?
6: Yeah, absolutely. The main challenge right now, of course, is what's been most visible than that has ever before, is really trying to find the black businesses, first of all. Um, just as Sarah mentioned, we have a very small black population, and for so long it's mainly just been um, the black businesses serving its Excuse me. Our black community. The goal of the Black Chamber is really to expand that influence, so they can cross that bridge and serve the the entire community. And so we've been making an efforts there. So that's one challenge. The other challenge is just that minority businesses in general have never had the access as the white businesses, and this stems all the way back to the days of of redlining and in real estate. We're still trying to overcome, and because of that, you'll we have a disproportionate wealth gap within in the white community and the minority community. So whereas the, the black household will maybe have a $7,000 net worth, you know, and the white majority household will have, you know, anywhere from fifty dollars to $100,000 of net worth. So the economic capital to invest into a business is not quite there. So the businesses end up being underbanked, um, not be able to qualify for the loans because they don't have enough collateral to push through. And so we're working through those challenges in order to, to help over overcome those challenges to give them more access to capital and education so and the visibility in order for these businesses to grow and thrive here in Utah. Does,
0: is there a way to... Uh... Have majority businesses understand that and, and maybe somehow promote doing more collaboration with uh minority businesses so that 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 bridge can be a uh, gap that that gap can be bridged to I me mean. we're working
6: on that right now we of course have an outpouring support of people from the community um you know now everybody's eyes are wide open at the same time and wanting to you know find out how they could become a better ally how they could support uh, the black community and the black owned businesses but not. Only, you know, become a consumer of the black businesses, but being support on the back end and offering their, their skills and abilities and talents to help educate them, help provide, you know, whatever type of services they need. And banks have too have found opportunities to where they can provide, um, uh, microloans or grants or working with the CDFI in order to, um, give them access to capital. And so we're working on strategies and collaborating with a lot of financial institutions right now for that.
0: Excellent. And, Sarah, last question for you. Um, I wanted to get a sense of people just having conversations, uh, not necessarily the leaders, but even the people in workplaces. What can be done so that people can feel more comfortable with each other and have more inclusive and diverse workplaces that uh, can be enriching?
5: Well, well, I'm just going to say people are already talking in your workplace. Even if you're not hearing it, those conversations are going on. So I think that there needs to be an awareness with leaders that these conversations are happening and it's up to you uh, whether or not you choose to engage and really understand the sentiments and feelings that, that your uh, teams are feeling. Um, one of the, there, there was this actually interesting situation that came up with one of my clients and, um, you know, our employees are actually also impacted by customers, right? And, and this conversation is, is everywhere. It's a global conversation, And one of their employees who happened to be black was speaking with a customer who just, you know, went went off on Black Lives Matter on a business call. And she didn't know what to do. And she didn't know if she would was able to to push back on the customer. And so that's an example where I think that leaders need to understand these conversations are happening. Some of those things can be worked into their policies and somewhere along the lines, because, again, we've tried to really kind of avoid these these conversations in the corporate space. There's an opportunity there to reframe and renew your policies, so and retrain your employee base, so that um, they have the ability to have these and not worry about being able to stand up for themselves or or um, you know stand up against racism. So um, so that's an example where I think just just work on not being disconnected from what those conversations are happening. And I think as leaders, there are ways that we can create the right. Uh, forums for this to happen in a way that can create some mutual learning and some some understanding that might not have existed before. I think there's a big push for anyone who is not Black to do a lot of their own homework. And I think that's certainly a very wise um, decision for anyone who needs to learn more or understand better about the Black experience. But I do think there are opportunities where you can actually engage and not even just talk about the Black experience, but retrain people to talk about, their, their own race, right? If you think about the way we've, we've thought about race in the workplace, it's usually the people of color that, you know, have the quote-unquote quote, challenges. Um, and so therefore, they constantly have to voice how race impacts them in the workplace. But white people never have to talk about how, we, how their race impacts their work experience. So if you think about that opportunity to build that capacity within all of your workplace, it can really help humanize and connect each other better together
2: sarah jones thank you so much for joining us you know jason uh, some people say what's the big deal they make jokes aimed at an african-american or a hispanic co-worker or fellow employee and the other workers find it to be normal workplace banter and called on the carpet the standard response is oh i was just messing around and well he didn't say it bothered him have any of you ever experienced this?
0: Mm, that's a good question. Um, I don't know that I have. That I haven't spoken up because I, I don't have that in me not to speak up. So I, um, I would say that people have been more careful. And when I have addressed them, uh, and I, I don't feel like I've been especially offended, uh, they've been receptive, as far as I can know. James, uh, have you had that experience?
6: Oh yeah. I mean, I've. I mean, I've. I've. Grew, I grew up a shy, uh, passive person you know pretty much all my life (laughs) you may not see it right now given (laughs) all the circumstances but you know I grew up pretty shy and passive and you know people make um, comments within school or at work and you know I really didn't know how to take it I didn't really have the courage back then to respond or say anything and fortunately I had some friends around me that would stand up for me or they would say something or other times I would just pretend like I didn't hear it and just walk away within the workspace and it did make a very uncomfortable experience within that work environment and wasn't really sure how to address it because i wasn't sure if that culture was designed for me to approach my management team say hey this has happened you know i didn't want to go back to those other people and make it feel like that was you know being the informant or whatnot but definitely makes it pretty uncomfortable
2: sarah Sarah, how about you
5: uh you know, I think people are pretty careful around, around me. I, I don't think I'm a scary person, but given the work that I do and, and that I've been doing diversity and inclusion for a very long time, I think uh, it typically, uh, I guess, chill, chills any of that type of banter. But, but what I have seen a few times are leaders that, um, you know, I had one leader say, you know, I have this radar. When I'm in a room, I kind of know that things are going to go south. And so so I kind of turn around and walk away. Before things get out of hand, because I don't, I don't want to be part of it. And I thought, gosh, you know that that's a shame, um, because there's an opportunity to disrupt that type of behavior, especially if you're you're in a leadership role. And this was a leader within the organization. And I think a lot of us are afraid to insert ourselves or to to get involved. Um, you know, they 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 might even be friends of ours, right? And that becomes a really big challenge in the workplace but we've got to get comfortable with disrupting that behavior when we see it and when it happens. Um, and that's really the only way that we're going to change that culture. There's a, there's absolutely uh, skills around doing that in a way that, that doesn't, you know, that you won't fracture. In fact, I'm doing um, a training tomorrow at the Salt Lake Chamber called uh, The Language of Inclusive Leadership. So I think there's communication skills that are highly effective in those situations, but we've got to learn as leaders to be resilient and to speak up when that is happening.
2: Well, there's been no shouting this hour. We hope even if you don't agree with what you've heard, at least perhaps you might understand Sarah Jones, James Jackson, the third, thank you so much for joining us as well as our guests, Chris Burbank and Monica Williams, Jason Lee. It's been an interesting hour.
0: Thank you very much, Jeff. It's been a pleasure to be with you.
2: You'll hear uh, Jason Lee on Sunday as the co host of Voices of Reason, which is a, also a podcast at KSL News Radio. Jason Lee is an esteemed journalist at the Deseret News. Our executive producers, Kevin LaRue and Kristen Sorensen, producer, Andrew Hull, our console engineer, Amber Gentry.
0: Join us again for the next episode of the Loudmouth Project's Voices of Reason. If you have any comments about the show, please contact us via email at, vrmed at gmail.com or at vorjasonl at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at adonsports and at jasonlee1. Our show's Twitter handle is at vorpodcast. Check out our Facebook page, and you can also find and subscribe to free episodes of our podcast in all the places where you find interesting content. Be sure to review our show as well. We love to get your feedback, and it helps us grow our audience. Until next time, I'm Jason Lee. When you engage in passionate debate, do your best to keep your dialogue civil. Try to be the voice of reason. Voices of Reason is a production of the Loudmouth Project.